This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now Edit, also known as the Nine Edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. Mama, me dad, and me gran, and a bucket of vindaloo. Na na na, vindaloo. I'm glad you're enjoying the song, but I've never heard it before. What is this? Why are you singing about Indian food? Because curry is my national dish. Now I'm really confused. Sure, London has great Indian restaurants because, of course, of colonialism. But curry is your national dish? How? How did curry become Britain's national dish? I think the questions need to go further than that, Cynthia. I mean, what is curry? And why is it not actually eaten in India where it supposedly comes from? And then there's Japanese curry and curries from the Caribbean where do all these dishes come from? Na na na, na na na, vindaloo, vindaloo, <laughs> You na, just keep na, going and I'll introduce the show. You're all listening, well, to Nikki singing and to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley, future winner of Britain's Got Talent, as well as co-host of Gastropod. And today's episode is, guess what, all about curry. This is actually a suggestion from Rory Bowie, who showed us around UC Berkeley's amazing egg collection for our egg episode. Thank you, Rory. Well, I grew up in um, India, and I lived there for about 21 years. Interestingly enough, the word curry, as you know it, as it's spelt and spoken in the English language, is a word that's not spoken in any of the 21 languages in India. This episode is already surprising me left and right. Curry isn't a word used to refer to any dishes in India. This is Raghavan Iyer, and he wrote a cookbook, a huge one actually, called 660 Curries. Um, excuse me. Raghavan's book is called 660 Curries, and it's full of Indian dishes. And he's saying actually that there's no such thing as curry in any Indian language? We have words that sound similar to curries, and those are all words that usually typify a dish that has either a sauce or a gravy to it. So how did words that sound like curry come to represent a whole range of Indian-style dishes, hundreds of them? Well, so 
That really starts off with the Portuguese. This is Lizzie Collingham. She's a historian and author of lots of books about food and history, including Curry, A Tale of Cooks and Conquerors. The Portuguese are the first Europeans to arrive in India to round the Cape of Good Hope, the bottom of South Africa, and sail to India. The Portuguese first landed in India in 1498, and by the 1500s, they'd firmly set up shop there. And they set up a post in Goa and... They look at what the Indians are eating and they say, oh, what are you eating? And the Indians are obviously using a word like kari or karil. So this kari or karil, what was it? It's a bit hazy. Were they referring to a gravy or a spice mix? Lizzie says that in a handful of southern Indian languages, the words karil or kari were used to describe the spices for seasoning a dish as well as the final dish. But today, those words still exist, but they mean sauce or gravy. And that's how Raghavan now uses the word curry. Anything that has a sauce or a gravy to it, and uh, it can be with or without spices. Uh, In fact, quite a few of the curries in India don't have spices in it, but they're just done with fresh herbs. The bottom line is, I've always said, if it's not a sauce or a gravy, it is not a curry. The Portuguese really were the ones to start using curry or curil to refer to Indian food in general. And then they that gets picked up by the British. They say, oh, Indians eat curry and curil. And then it turns into curry. And then that becomes the generic term, Indians, according to Europeans, eat curry. So Europeans use curry to refer to what Indians eat. And what exactly do Indians eat? Unsurprisingly, for a place that is also a subcontinent and was home to hundreds of millions of people, they were eating a lot of very different things. India, of course, is is divided into lots of regions. So you'd have a Bengali way of cooking, which uses a lot of mustard oil and mustard seeds. In Gujarat, they cook a lot of sweet, sour sort of dishes. And so on from region to region. And then there's also different religions followed in India. Muslims, of course, wouldn't eat pork and so on. So there's a whole range of different ways of eating. And then there's the kinds of foods you might grow or the kinds of spices that grow. Each of these different groups of people in different places with different beliefs, they would each have their own saucy dishes or curries. So many saucy dishes, even more than you might imagine, because Indian kitchens typically didn't have ovens. Some regions do use tandoor clay ovens, but really, most Indian dishes are stewed and thus saucy. So now we know that curry isn't really an Indian word or really an Indian dish, but it is definitely a word we use in America. We sometimes say curry to refer to Indian food. But really, it's a British word. I mean, it's a British institution. Fancy a curry? Why not? Right, let's see where we're up to. What we've got so far, we have lamb pasanda, beef madras, mm-hmm. chicken jalfrezi, no, no tomatoes, and Gavin wants a king prawn bawdy. Hello, Yay. We're getting an Indian. What do you fancy? Chicken boner, lamb boner, prawn boner, mushroom rice. Bar- I've got us both a lovely big curry as a treat. Chicken tikka masala, balti tiger prawn... Vegetable korma. I thought I'd really push the boat out. There's a naan and a half each. I mean, this is a curry house, isn't it? Can't get much more British than that, can you? Eh? No, you cannot. So that is a roll call of British TV comedy. Only Fools and Horses, Gavin and Stacey, Peep Show, Alfita Zane Pet. It's like a montage of my youth combined with, of course, curry. As the token American here, I've never heard of any of these shows, I have to admit. And there's some funny sounding language to me, like getting an Indian. Right. And the idea that there's nothing more English than a curry house. 
there's some issues to unpack here, to put it mildly. So how did going to a curry house and getting an Indian become something that you do on a Friday night after getting pissed at the pub? Unsurprisingly, it's to do with colonialism and empire. But not just the British Empire. India has been invaded by different empires multiple times. So North India, that's been affected by waves of um, Muslim immigration from Central Asia, Genghis Khan. And those people brought nomadic ways of cooking. These are the Mughals. They tried to invade India for hundreds of years, and they finally succeeded in the early 1500s. Babur the Tiger was a descendant of Genghis Khan, and he was a contemporary of Henry VIII. He came from what's now Uzbekistan, and he was the first Mughal emperor in northern India. Neither Babur nor his son were fans of the local cuisine, so they brought in cooks from Persia. Yeah, at the court of the caliphs in in Persia, rice was a really valued dish, especially aromatic rice like basmati. And then they also really loved marinating meat in yogurt for a long time before they cooked it so that it was lovely and tender. And so they brought both of those ways of cooking to northern India with them. The local people in northern India loved spices, and so the Mughals took those spices and added them to their rice and meat dish. And you get this lovely aromatic dish which they call biryani. Biryani is layers of meat marinated in yogurt and then cooked in the yogurt sauce and then layered with rice with whole spices dotted through it. So we think of biryani as a typically Indian dish, but that's actually a a combination of Persian and northern Indian ways of cooking. Lizzie says the Mughals had a lasting impact on Indian food. A lot of the kinds of cooking you still see in India today, the creamy sauces, skewered meats and kebabs, expensive and luxurious ingredients like saffron and almonds and pistachios, that's all Mughal influence. Around the same time as the Mughals began their rule in northern India, the Portuguese colonized a part of southwest India. As we said, they took over Goa in the 1500s, and they ruled there for hundreds of years. And they didn't just co-opt the word curry, they also left their mark on the local dishes. Up until the 15th century, Black pepper only grew in Kerala, the tiny region along the southwest coast at the tip of India. And so black pepper was a huge influence on on cooking there. And the food was very hot because black pepper makes things very hot. We don't really think of black pepper as hot these days, but if you crunch down on a whole peppercorn, it does have a kick. A little further up the coast, the Goans also loved a spice called long pepper, which is not actually related to black pepper, but they apparently taste similar and have a similar heat level. But still, those peppers provide a pretty small kick compared to what was to come. Then, of course, the Portuguese arrive with chilies, and they bring chilies from the Americas. And long pepper, the problem with long pepper was that it went moldy very quickly. You couldn't store it very well. Whereas chilies dry and keep very well. So chilies eventually ousted long pepper from Indian cooking and spread. So the Portuguese brought the spicy chilies, which are now part of Indian cooking throughout the country, and they brought some new methods of cooking too. They brought the idea of marinating meat in vinegar. They brought the idea, but not the vinegar. And southern Indians didn't actually have vinegar, so Portuguese settlers had to improvise. They used a local coconut-based alcohol called toddy, to make toddy vinegar. And you put chilies with the toddy and uh, toddy vinegar and then you marinate pork in it because they bring pigs with them to cook and then you get um, vindaloo 
And that's a kind of melding of Portuguese and Indian ways of cooking. You put lots of nice Indian spices in and so on. Vindaloo, a corruption of vinho e alios, or wine vinegar and garlic. Does this mean I get to hear you sing again? I thought you'd never ask. Vindaloo, <laughs> vindaloo, na na. So obviously these are dishes you can find in curry houses in the UK today. But vindaloo is originally Portuguese. So why are you Brit singing odes to it? Well, first of all, it's probably safe to say that most Friday night Night Vindaloo eaters are not aware of the history of the dish, but actually it's to do with the chilies. Vindaloo is the spiciest item on the curry house menu as a general rule, and British men in particular like to order it often extra spicy to prove their manliness. So manly. Na na na. Awesome. Are we done with Vindaloo? Never. But so now we know how some of these famous British curry house classics came to be. They're Indian, yes, but many of them also have roots elsewhere. But then how did they become British classics? How did all these dishes show up in literally every town in Great Britain? It all began with a British hunger for spices and for the money that came from trading them. The British East India Company was set up by a group of merchants who wanted to trade with the East Indies, not just India, but also with... um, the Spice Islands further east in what is now Indonesia, because spices were so popular in European cooking at the time. And so they wanted to go east and buy spices and bring them back and sell them for quite a lot of money. This was back in the 1600s. It might sound funny now because the stereotype of British food is that it's kind of bland. But at the time, British food was known for being rich with lots of spices. At least the dishes served the aristocrats, of course. They're the ones who could afford nutmeg and ginger and cumin from distant lands. demand was there, so the spice trade was lucrative. The Brits saw how well the Portuguese were doing in India, and they wanted a piece of the action. They could only sail to India at certain times of the year, and so British merchants set up little operations along the coast, and they stayed. Then they get involved in the kind of local disputes and end up Um, putting their own people in charge. Basically, at the first sign of trouble, they brought in the British army, which, you know, is kind of a prelude to taking over. In Bengal, the emperor ends up awarding the East India Company the Nawab ship of Bengal and Bihar. And that's how they sort of start taking over and becoming a ruling power in India. There's all sorts of complex history to how British involvement in India went from a trading company to full-on colonization. But... This is gastropod, so let's get back to what those proto-colonizers were eating. So it was terribly high status in Britain at that time to have lots of meat on the table. So an East India Company merchant's table would be groaning with, I don't know, sirloins of beef even in, in India. Um, which must have been a bit offensive for the Hindus. And then um, turkeys and capons and all kinds of meat. But also they really loved the Indian food, so they would put curry and rice on their table. So those early merchants in the late 18th, early 19th century, cheerfully tucked into all kinds of Indian dishes and relished them. The Indian dishes were, of course, cooked by Indian servants. The servants were cooking high cuisine for the rich Brits, their bosses. And to them, high cuisine meant Mughal-style dishes like biryani and korma. It's a very much a courtly way of cooking. It's a very, it, it uses expensive ingredients and lots of spices and, and it's, it's a very grand uh, way of cooking. If you want to really honour somebody, you would cook them a Mughal dish. But even though the Brits liked these Mughal dishes, they had some suggestions for how to improve them. And then, of course, the British change dishes. So they like Indian food, but then their cooks, their Indian cooks who are cooking for them, think, oh, well, they've got sort of slightly sensitive stomachs and I shouldn't put so many spices in and so on. So they change the dishes that they're cooking for them. And so eventually 
there's a sort of English set of dishes, dishes which are adapted to English tastes, and those, in a way, are curry. As the Brits tweaked the dishes for their delicate constitutions, they also went mad for all the different chutneys and pickles and everything you might sprinkle on a dish. The British loved all these relishes, but the trouble was they didn't see that as being a specific relish for a specific style of dish. They just took the idea of these relishes being delicious and would sprinkle them on any old curry. They did. They just picked and chose whatever they liked and sort of put it all together. This mashup also happened because the British moved around a lot. Every two or three years, these East India Company officials were posted to a new location. But if they liked the mango chutney or the dried coconut garnish they found in the South, they had their cooks add those ingredients to northern dishes too. More was more. And so those curries got spread all over India and became almost a national cuisine. In a way, you could argue that the first um, pan-Indian, the sort of Indian national cuisine, was the Anglo-Indian cuisine, the British cuisine. Although that was very much, you know, a British thing, a European thing. Indians probably, until after independence, didn't really eat those kinds of curries. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit, also known as the Nine edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. Okay, so curry has been invented. It starts as a generic British name for all Indian food and then becomes a style of cooking made by Indians for Brits in India. But people back in the UK, they are not eating curry. Or at least not at first. That's right. So when when the British came home, so they'd loved all these having curry and rice on their table in India. And so now they were back home, they wanted to replicate this. So they would bring recipes home with them. Some of them even brought their own cooks from India. This was back in the 1700s. And the Indian cooks cooking back in England made pretty authentic versions of these not very authentic British Indian dishes. But they were still pretty complicated. The cooks fried and ground whole spices, for instance. There's a lovely one of the earliest recipes in 
a cookery book, published recipes for curry, it was, recommends that you should roast some coriander seeds on a shovel. And I actually did do that for a program. We actually made that curry and it was really fun. They pop and they really aromatic. These early dishes were served at the homes of wealthy, retired British East India Company merchants. They were deliberately exotic and fancy and complicated. These guys wanted to signal their status. But in the end, that was all a bit of an effort. And people would started to put together a sort of a spice blend. And they say, oh, well, you just need that blend of spices. And then you use that. And that makes a curry. Hey, presto. Lizzie says the first mention of this shortcut was in 1784 in an ad for Sorley's Perfumery Warehouse in Piccadilly. It described ready-mixed curry powder. And by the 1850s, most recipes for curries in British cookbooks called for a spoonful of curry powder. Curry powder is undoubtedly a huge time saver. But it's not actually an improvement in terms of flavor. There is a logic to the order that Indians add spices to their dishes. They add whole spices first because these take longer to release their flavor. And then they add things like ground turmeric later because those have a tendency to burn. And another thing you might notice in Indian cookbooks today that they always say to add all the spices to oil. But the Brits just dumped their curry powder with all those different spices when they put the water and meat into the dish. They didn't quite get that it, frying the spices releases the aroma first. And if you put spices straight into wet sauces, you get a slightly raw taste. And then, of course, in India, different dishes use different combinations of spices. But curry powder is just curry powder. And so British curries became more and more formulaic. The British tended to put a lot of turmeric in their curry powder. So Indians don't actually cook with much turmeric. They put a tiny bit in because just for health reasons. But the British loved the way it turned the food yellowy orange. And so they dumped loads of turmeric into the curry powder. So British curries tasted very um, distinctive like that. They did have a few different versions of curry powder, mild, medium, and hot, all very orange-colored. And it was all about strength, not flavor, in terms of difference. So the British kind of took something very complicated and turned it into something very simple. So that's what happened to curry in its first century in England. It became simplified, yes, but for that first hundred years, it was still a dish for the upper class. And then curry started to trickle down. From about 1877, Disraeli decides that he needs to get the working classes on board with the empire project. Benjamin Disraeli was prime minister of England in the 1870s, and at the time, there was quite a bit of unrest in the British Isles. There was a lot of inequality and people protesting that inequality. And Disraeli was like, let's distract these poor hungry people with patriotism and empire. There are all kinds of music hall songs enthusing about the empire and it's sort of, uh, it's glorified, this idea. And so what part of that was also you'd have lots of exhibitions. They do mad things like bring an entire reconstruction of an Indian village to London and you'd have Indians brought over to be jugglers and snake charmers. Yes, obviously, these exhibitions are totally racist. Everything about this is problematic. But it's also how Indian-style curries started spreading to the British lower classes. They would often also set up an Indian restaurant. And so ordinary people, people who couldn't normally afford that kind of thing, if they could afford to go in and visit the exhibition, they could go in and taste some Indian food at the Indian cafe and so on. So it starts to get very popular that way. At the same time, companies are starting starting to bottle some of these sauces and chutneys ready-made. 
So once you've had a taste of Empire at the fair, you can recreate it at home. And they would label it as Narbob's chutney or give it some kind of oriental name to give it a sense of the exotic and so on. So towards the end of the century, people played on exotic. They played on the idea of empire. They played on the idea of white superiority in order to enthuse people for empire and also empire products. So proud. But the non-aristocratic Brits didn't have access to all the expensive ingredients that the upper class had. Well, that's the thing. That, that, so they thought, oh dear, I want to make mango chutney, but I can't make that at home. So, so what shall I use? And they'd use apples. Mangoes, apples. I mean, what's the difference? Lizzie's even found recipes where people just give up on the fresh fruit concept altogether and add a dollop of jam. For a sour note, in India, cooks might use the flesh of a pod called tamarind. Of course, tamarind wasn't easy to find in London in the 1800s. So they put lemon juice in. So that became another standard thing. So the end of cooking a curry in Britain, you would always add a little bit of lemon juice. And so they find things that sort of approximate the flavours and put those in. And then the Brits also toned down the spice levels even further. And the end result unsurprisingly, tastes nothing like anything anyone would ever have eaten in India. Lizzie made one of these classic 1870s curries just to try it. And I was really surprised because it did taste incredibly bland. It didn't taste at all like an Indian dish. I wouldn't, if you'd just given it to me to taste blind, I would never have guessed it was Indian. But these bland curries were still far more exciting than British food at the time. Because between the 1600s, when the Brits loved spices, and the 1800s, something had changed. And this was very much because at that point in the 17th century, they became very influenced by classical cooking. They rediscovered Greece and Rome, and that's why it's called the Renaissance, and they wanted to sort of return to these European roots, and so the flavourings change. They go for anchovies and salty and wine and lemon juice becomes a flavouring, and very simple. And the spices are pushed out of the cooking and into just the sweet. So we still have gingerbread and spiced fruitcakes and saffron buns, but the main course? Dull as ditch water. So these weird adapted toned-down yellow-colored curries were still a mega flavor hit to the poor, understimulated palates of Victorian England. The Brits at the time were figuring out how to make these dishes at home. Most Victorian-era British cookbooks included curry recipes, and they specifically pointed out that curries were a great way to use up your leftover roast dinner. Yum. But today, curry is something you get at a curry house or as takeaway. So how did curry become a restaurant meal in the UK? Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! <laughs> I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. 
To find out why curry houses are popular from Newcastle to Norwich, we need to go back to India, specifically to a place called Silet. Oh, Silet is a just tiny province in what is now Bangladesh. It's cut through by lots and lots of waterways. And so uh, that area, many of the men were fishermen or boatmen and so on. And when they started looking for jobs, they would go into Calcutta as the main city, and then they would get jobs on the ships. So lots of them end up in what was actually a pretty grim job, shoveling coal into the engine of steamships down in the boiler room. It was hot, and it was dangerous, and it was badly paid. So a lot of Siletis, when they got to their destination, would jump ship. They just didn't want to go back on the ship and carry on with this horrible job. They jumped ship in London, and they ended up opening cafes just basically for other Siletis. Lizzie says Sileti cuisine is not actually known for anything much at all. It's really not one of the great culinary traditions of the subcontinent. But, you know, they still didn't want to eat British food. A lot of them were looking for jobs... And they'd start off working in these cafes and then they would find jobs in catering and work in washing up in the big hotels in London. So they all got into sort of the catering trade. And then they went, once they'd saved up enough money, they might buy up an old run-down fish and chip shop, especially after the war. There were a lot of run-down fish and chip shops after the war. They were run by poor immigrants. Before the Saletis, it was usually immigrant Jews. And the shops were open late after pubs closed at 11 p.m. So people got into the habit of fish and chips after a night out drinking. And the new owners, the Saletis, carried on serving fish and chips when they took over. But they would add a couple of curries to the menu too. Which is how you get the tradition of after the pub or after a football game, you might stop at the Siletti Cafe and have curry sauce on your chips and things like that. So that's how that tradition gets going and how, how it gets associated with lager and all those sorts of ways of eating in Britain. The Salettis first started opening these restaurants in the 20s and 30s, but the trend really took off in the 1960s. There was a lot more immigration from India because of unrest there after independence and then the India and Pakistan partition and the resulting war. At the same time, rationing was finally over in the UK and the British economy was picking up steam after the war. By the 1960s, people are wealthier again. That's when restaurants really take off and people of all levels of society start going out to eat a meal and so on. And so Indian restaurants became very popular because actually they weren't terribly expensive. So you could afford to go out for a meal and have a night an Indian on a Saturday night. The British middle classes maybe couldn't afford to go on foreign holidays yet, but going out for an Indian was a close second. The Indian restaurants, they had a kind of atmosphere so they were often quite small they had dimly lit with red flock wallpaper and comfy little seats and it was an exciting and slightly exotic slightly oriental thing to do oh hi good evening gentlemen Rowan Atkinson is a famous British comedian. He played Mr. Bean, and this is a recording of a sketch of his where he's poking fun at the dreadful behavior of drunk Brits at the curry house. No, 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 that's no problem. Come in, please. Although, sh- although perhaps if we could just keep that delightful singing down. Na, 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 bindaloo. I honestly don't know what he's getting at here. Obviously plenty of refreshment at the football game. No, no, come in, do. Oh, no, no. No, that table is reserved. Um, it is also a table for two people. Uh, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps this table might be more suitable for nine. It's become such a stereotype that the Anglo-Indian cast of a British comedy from the 90s called Goodness Gracious Me made fun of it by imagining it happening in reverse. God damn it, guys. 
I mean, Bombay is the restaurant capital of the world, right? So how come every Friday night we end up in this dump? Because that's what you do, innit? You go out, you get tanked up on lussies, and you go for an English. We have links to both of those sketches on our website, gastropod.com. But the point is, yes, British people frequently drink too much, and some of them are casually racist, But also, curry has become a British national dish. In fact, in 2001, the foreign minister at the time, Robin Cook, named chicken tikka masala a curry house classic as the country's national dish. We tell the story of the invention of chicken tikka masala, or butter chicken, in our special supporters email. You can find out more at gastropod.com slash support. But why do you Brits have chicken tikka masala and chicken korma and lamb dansak, while we Americans mostly commonly find dishes like sag paneer or chana masala or dal at our Indian restaurants? America had a really different relationship with India and a really different immigration history, too. The first Indian immigrants to the U.S. came from the Punjab and settled in California. And those typical Punjabi dishes, the dal makhani, the chana masala, they pretty much formed the template. And to be honest, the U.S. had really restrictive immigration policies for Indians and a correspondingly tiny Indian-American population for a really long time. I always feel like, you know, when you go to a good part of the restaurant scene in in the U.S., for instance, all over, I feel like there's a gnome sitting under the tree somewhere stamping out cookie-cutter menus that are exactly the same. Raghavan's first experience with the Indian food scene in America happened decades ago. He landed in southwestern Minnesota when he was in his early 20s, and he didn't know how to cook. But he missed the foods of his homeland, so he went to the supermarket, and he saw a can of curry powder, and on the label, it promised to transport him to India. Why don't I thought, oh, wow, I've hit the jackpot. And so I took that can with me home and I, and I bought, you know, potatoes and onions and because that's what I was craving, a very simple potato curry. And uh, um, when, I, when I ate that concoction, um, I was crying because I, uh, A, it was, um, you know, missing my mother's food and B, this can lied to me <laughs> because it had nothing to do with what I grew up with. And so I felt betrayed on so many levels. And so that was my first experience with the concept of of curry and curry powders in uh, the United States. So our restaurant dishes are all stamped out by gnomes under a tree, and our curry powder tastes nothing like the food Raghavan grew up with. But the UK and the US? Those are not the only places you find a version of curry today. It's almost like you follow the diaspora, you know, and you look at... Well, you know, Indians were brought in as slaves to uh, the West Indies and the Caribbean countries because they were also brought in by the British and so on. So you find um, incorporating elements of curry powders, but you also find incorporating techniques from China, for instance, or some of the other cultures that influenced Uh, the cuisine of Trinidad and Tobago. Curry is hugely popular in South Africa, too, because of Indians who'd been brought there as indentured servants. These are all parts of the former British Empire. And then there's Japan. National food, it's like a national food. It's basically a Japanese, yeah, a Japanese national food. This is Takashi Morieda. He's the Japanese journalist who's written a lot about Japan and curry. And we met him in a restaurant in the middle of a park in Tokyo. 
It was his idea to meet there, and for good reason. It was the first place in Japan to serve curry. Japan had been closed to the outside world for centuries, but then in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the Japanese emperor decided that they had to modernize and open themselves up in order to stay independent. In reality, this was basically forced on them at gunpoint by the American Navy decades earlier. But the end result was the Japanese opened themselves up to trade to America and to Europe. Okay, so that explains the introduction of Western culture. But why curry in particular? Japanese curry uh, first arrived in Japan, or curry first arrived in Japan, sorry, in the Meiji era. And it came here as a, a part of the Western, you know, food culture that, that was growing here. But it didn't come from India, it came from Britain, in fact. Um, it was featured originally in something called Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household. Uh, household book. This is a famous cookbook from Victorian England, Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management. That formed the base of what became uh, the Japanese the adapted Japanese curry. It was adapted from an English curry. By 1880, curry was on the menu in the Imperial Palace. There were uh, foreign dishes, well, it, but they were mostly English style anyway, and curry was the only one that really took root. At first, curry was only for the elite, but as in Britain, it trickled down. Partly because of another change that happened at the same time, the emperor ruled that Japanese people were allowed to eat meat. They hadn't officially been able to before for religious and social reasons. Of course, even before then, people were eating it, but they weren't supposed to. But they, after that, they were allowed to eat it. So this was when the Japan's sort of um, love affair with meat started. The Meiji emperor decided that Japanese people needed to bulk up. The English and Americans were taller and bigger, and in a seemingly related fact, they also ate a lot of meat. And was, meat became the symbol of making or creating a healthy body. Uh, unfortunately, Japanese people found it very difficult to eat things like steak, as the British people did, um, because it was too oily. They weren't used to that kind of... Um, Bloody, I beg your pardon, not oily, bloody. Curry hid all the bloody bits. You could chop up the meat small and cook it and hide it in this yellowy-brown sauce. The Japanese military were particular fans of curry. First of all, they wanted big, strong soldiers, so they fed them lots of beef. And curry was easy to make and serve in bulk. It was just meat, potatoes, carrots, and curry powder with a roux sauce to make it nice and thick. In the 19-teens and 20s, the Japanese army actually used the fact that it served curry as an incentive in its recruitment materials. That's how glamorous this exciting new Western dish was. After the military, for basically the same reasons, curry started to get served in schools. And then in the 1960s, Japanese companies invented a block of curry paste that had the floury roux in it, so it was already thickened. And you can just mix it with water and potatoes and carrots and meat, and there you go, instant Japanese curry. If you haven't had this kind of Japanese curry and you're picturing maybe Indian food or British Indian food or American Indian food, well... It's not like any of those things. Uh, I can't really compare it with any Indian curry. It's its own thing, and it's hugely popular. Like Takashi said, it's the national dish, and they eat it all the time. It used to be something you just ate at home or in school, but now Japanese people often eat it out at restaurants, too. So I reckon that now, 
um, it's probably more than once a week, probably even two times a week. One of Takashi's theories as to why curry is so popular in Japan is precisely that it is a foreign food. It's exempt from all the normal high-maintenance rules about balance and beautiful presentation that typify Japanese cuisine. Curry is just brown and sloppy and hot, and you eat it with a spoon, not chopsticks, and it reminds you of school dinners. And that's all kind of comforting. And now Japanese companies are even trying to export this national dish to China. Japanese businesses are trying to get mouths watering in China for a dish that's popular back home. It's not sushi or tempura. It's curry rice. Demand in Japan is dropping in part because of the declining population. So companies have set their sights on a much bigger market. It's our goal to make Japanese curry everyone's favorite in China, just like in Japan. Will Chinese people take to one of the most popular dishes in Japan? If they do, it'll probably morph even more to fit Chinese taste buds. Curry travels and changes shapes, and somehow it's all still this dish we call curry. So we have British curries and Caribbean curries and Malaysian curries and South African curries and Japanese curries and more... Basically, curry is a global food, mostly thanks to British colonialism. It's been transported around the world and then transformed to suit local tastes wherever it goes. As we described, curry is rarely quite as complex and flavorful as the dishes it mimics. It's not really Indian food. It's Indian-inspired. But so did curry end up having any impact back in India? Lizzie told us that other colonizers changed Indian food. The Mughals brought their yogurt marinade and their way with rice. The Portuguese brought chilies and cooking meat in vinegar. So, what about the Brits? We ended up with curry. What did the Indians get? Not much. <laughs> not not in terms of ways of cooking. Okay, so what did they leave? So the British were homesick and they wanted European vegetables. So they brought out seeds for beans and cauliflowers and potatoes. They introduced potatoes and tomatoes. These are vegetables that today are super common in Indian cooking. The point is that the Indians integrated these vegetables into ways of Indian cooking. They didn't change the way that Indians prepared them. They just changed the ingredients that they had. And that's because Indians weren't interested in British food per se. If you eat British food in India, it just seems utterly boring. And so why would it take off? Harsh. But fair. But today, Indians do sometimes make those British curry house dishes in restaurants. Because they, they become kind of retro or objects of curiosity for the Indians themselves. They will eat those kinds of things. I don't think I've ever come across an Indian who makes chicken tikka masala at home, though. Okay, so sometimes Indians do eat what we know as curry. But would an Indian ever call their own food curry? <laughs> well, yeah. Weird. Well, Indi- when I talk to my Indian friends now, they will say, if, I, if they're visiting me in England, they'll say, oh, will you make me a curry? And they don't mean, will I make a kind of British Indian curry? They mean, will I make an Indian dish that I make at home? And so, yes, they very politely use our term for their food. Raghavan wrote a book called 660 Curries, kind of for the same reason, so we Westerners would know what he's talking about. But was he just being polite? And really, he's secretly offended by this term that covers all the incredibly varied cuisines in India? You know, initially it bothered me, but then I thought to myself, you know, why not why not take a rotten lemon and turn it into a beautiful pickle? <laughs> so I embraced it and I looked at it as a learning tool. Uh, I mean, if I had my dithers, I would have named the books, you know, 660 Sauces. Me and me mama, me dad and me grand went off to Waterloo. Me and me mama, me dad and me grand and a bucket of vindaloo. 
And that's it. I'm off for a ruby. And I'm not going to translate because I'm not polite like that. The definition of a Ruby Murray, which frankly I only learned while we were making this episode, it's in our episode notes at gastropod.com. Thanks this episode to Lizzie Collingham, author of Curry, A Tale of Cooks and Conquerors, and to Raghavan Iyer, author of 660 Curries. And to Takashi Morieda, we have links to his articles on our website, and of course to our fabulous intern Emily Pontecorvo for finding a lot of the fun sound we use this episode. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash reserve to learn more. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit, also known as the Nine edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. Podcast.